And so I'm excited to talk to you guys about prayer. It is the most neglected area in any church. You talk to any pastor, sit down with any pastor, sit down with anybody. And we spoke about this last week. I said there are certain priorities that you have as a people of God, right? The priorities would be, I think, that if you want to increase and grow in faith, there are three areas that you need to work on in your life. Worship, study, and prayer. Those are the three areas that build a solid believer. Worship, study, and prayer. Now, how does study happen? Well, it comes through personal reading of the Word of God. It comes through maybe picking up a devotional book that is based on scriptures that you're reading, that you could read daily or weekly. It comes through you coming to the house of God and listening to a sermon or coming through the house of God for one of our life groups and sitting down and dialoguing with the, with the facilitators there, with the life group leaders to learn more about God's word. But if I were to tell you, if I were to ask you anonymously and tell you deep, dig deep into the bottom of your heart and I want to know the answer to this question. If I took all of those three areas in your life and I ranked them in priority order, what would be first and what would be last? And I guarantee you, for all of you, worship would be first. Because it's awesome to worship. It's awesome to bask in that presence. But worship is not only that. It's a lifestyle. But if we were strictly to define worship by the songs that we sing in a church, it evokes an emotional experience within us, an emotional euphoria, a happiness within us while we're in it. But the second that we get out of it, what will sustain us? And that's where prayer and study come into play. But if we're really real with each other, then we could say this. Study normally only comes to play for many of us, for the majority of us, when we're listening to a message or a sermon. Because if we're really real with each other, and if I were to survey the congregation, I would say maybe just 10% of you actually read the Scripture on a daily basis. Or maybe just another 10% of you actually have a devotional that you read or some sort of study ministry that you receive on a weekly basis. And so I would say for the majority of you, your study time is now. And this won't sustain you in and of itself. And so what else helps sustain the walk of a believer? What else is the next column that sustains a believer during hard times, during difficult moments? I love Jesus, and there's only a certain amount of strength that I know that I have. But I have seen faithful giants walk in prayer. I have seen faithful people's lives be bathed in prayer, and I've seen them do impossible things while they are utterly broken and torn and ripped apart. I remember... Uh, it was just December of 2012. At that point, I was pastoring the church, but 
This is a church restart for those of you who don't know. The church had been down, very down, and, and so uh, uh, the church at that point in time uh, couldn't have me on full time. So I was working at Banana Republic, and I was the pastor of the church at the same time. And so I remember um, my dad called me. And so he unintentionally left the phone on after he had intended and hang up and speaking with me. So I had an iPhone, so I clicked to see what the voicemail was, and all I could hear was crying and wailing in the background. And in my head, I already knew what had happened. But I called my wife. I said, I want to know what's going on. Is my grandmother alive, or is she, did she pass away? And so Crystal said, no, well, uh, I'm, I'm getting dressed right now. I think you should come home. Um, your grandmother passed away. So I, I left immediately. I jetted. I was working in Paramus, New Jersey, and my family lives uh, in the shadows of West Point in Orange County, New York. And so I jetted all the way down that highway, picked up my wife, headed right to my family's house where my grandmother was. She was in hospice care. And, uh, and when I arrived, she was there laying down. She had passed away at that point, been an, an hour, two hours at that point. And my grandfather was there next to her. I've never seen anybody do this in my entire life. I, I, my grandfather and my grandmother were the greatest love story that I have ever seen. They shared a cup of coffee with each other. They didn't make separate cups of coffee. They shared a cup of coffee with each other. I saw them kiss each other every night when they went to sleep. They told each other, I love you. They were, wherever one was, the other one was. And I saw my grandfather open his Bible and read his Bible and begin to pray. And I said, I, if this ever happened to me, if I ever lost my wife or if I ever lost my kid, I don't know that I could be the person that does that. But you see, it wasn't that he had just turned in that moment to prayer. It's that he had built a lifetime of roots and groundedness in a life of prayer that he knew exactly where to go to, that it was a discipline within him. As much of a reflex as it is that if someone hits you, you hit back, it's as much of a reflex as it was to him, pain, the throne room of God. <laughs> Trouble and despair, the throne room of God. Loss, the throne room of God. Because it is the only place that comfort dwells. Our society tries to replicate the throne room of God with alcohol. Drunkenness specifically. It tries to replicate it with euphoric drugs and ecstasy and heroin and crack cocaine. But it's all fictitious to the throne room of God. And the only thing that could ever transport you to the throne room of God, it's not just worship. It's not just study. But the very thing that leads you into the throne room of God is prayer. The very thing that will unleash the grace and the power of God upon your life is the power of prayer. 
And without that pillar in your life, you will always turn to the wrong things. I'm guilty of it. I'm like the Apostle Paul says, chief among sinners. I do things I shouldn't. I probably say things I shouldn't. The only thing that could ever sustain my life is prayer. When I try to fill that void, and that's not a column in my life, then I turn to other things. And you say, Pastor Tom, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a drunken person. I don't do drugs. But I would say to you, well, who's that person that you call when things go down? Before turning to Christ or while turning to Christ, is there somebody that you turn to, that you rely on, that you pour your heart into, that you call instead of going to Christ in prayer? Not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm saying it's a bad thing when it's done on its own. I turn to my wife, and I call her when things go wrong, and I pour my heart out to her sometimes without following this column. And you know what happens sometimes? My wife fails me, and sometimes I fail her. And so my heart is left broken, as I'm sure your heart has been many times. And if you've been in a marriage or in a relationship any amount of time, you'll know. You'll break each other's hearts. It's just how it is. The only thing that will make it through to the end and the only thing that gives a successful marriage is two forgiving people that are willing to forgive each other of all the wrong that they've ever done. The only person who can never fail me, who can always sustain me and can sustain the foundations of my life, is Christ. The only way to do that is prayer. I'm going to fail my wife. I'm going to not give her the advice that she needs sometimes. I'm going to not want to hear certain things sometimes, especially when it's pertaining to me. But the only thing that sustains me in times of trouble is prayer. The only thing that unleashes God's power, blessing, goodness, and authority and will over your life is prayer. And for some of you, you've been carried along by other people's prayers. I know I have. My grandfather's prayers carried me along all the way. Can I ask you a question? What happens when the old guard goes away and the praying people are no longer here? How will you be carried along? Because the only thing that will genuinely sustain your life is your prayer life. It's your communication with God. And let me break this down for a moment because I don't want to get too religious here. Because for some people, you have a defined order of what this looks like. And if it's not done in that format, then it's not real, it's not genuine, it's not authentic. But let me tell you something. I learned this. Prayer is as simple as a conversation with God. And in my car, when I had an hour and a half commute to and from the church, I was praying out loud, my eyes wide open, talking to God. Oh, my God, Pastor, your eyes are wide open while you're praying. 
no, that's not how it's done. Yes, yes, it is how it's done. As long as my, my mouth is moving, not even my mouth has to be moving. As long as my thoughts are circulating to the king of glory, then I'm communicating with him. For some of you, you need to do that differently. It's not working out getting on your knees every night and closing your eyes and getting behind your bed and praying. It's, you're failing at it. If you're like me, then you fail at that. If you're like me and you want to be ultra spiritual during a fast and lay down beside your bed and pray on the floor like you're doing some powerful spiritual prayer and then you wake up 10 minutes later and you're like, whoa. Amen. That doesn't work. Praying like that doesn't work for me. But I learned how to pray from a great man in the Bible. His name is David. And he taught me that my prayers are not just me bending down on my knees and closing my eyes. He taught me that prayers can be written down. That the heartbeat of, of that your heartbeat can be felt through pieces of paper and a pen. As he wrote down in parchment the psalms of his broken heart. As he wrote down in parchment the praises that he would sing to God. As he wrote down on paper <laughs> when his enemies would encircle him. It taught me, Tom, you may not be the guy that closes his eyes and spends an hour on his knees, but you're the guy that can write. And if you can write, I will hear you. I will hear your voice just as good as I hear the person that's on their knees, just as good as I hear the person that closes their eyes, just as good as I hear the person that communicates with me in the car or wherever they are. And here's another powerful thing I learned about prayer. I learned that it was not only through journaling that my emotions could break loose and break free and that I could be authentic with the God of the universe. But I was taught this in seminary. I shared this last week. I learned that prayer is in a one-sided street. That prayer isn't just me speaking to God, but that often I needed to give God the opportunity to speak back. And so I learned this powerful ideal of prayer. And it was this, that I would give God the opportunity as I sat in silence to hear him speak to me. Can I tell you something? There is something incredibly powerful. And we don't have this in Protestant churches. Because when we decided to break loose from the Catholic Church and decided that we had everything right, we also tossed out a lot of wonderful things with that. Not everything, but a lot of wonderful things. If you ever get an opportunity to read a book about Catholic monastic life, you know what a monk is? There are Catholic monks who take a vow of silence in their life. And they read and study God's word and pray in silence. And their whole life's mission and whole life's goal is just to hear from God. We lose that heart in our culture because our culture is so noisy and rowdy 
that we don't ever know how to sit in silence. It's tough for us to be able to shut our minds out to our workplace, to our family life, and to all the noise that surrounds us to hear what is it that God is is saying in your life. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, would you try to hear from God today? Would you be in silence before him and say, Lord, can you just identify clearly for me? And maybe some of you don't know this. Some of you do. Some of you are keenly aware. Some of you may not know where God is working in your life, and you want to know, Lord, what are you up to in my life? I firmly believe that as you ask fervently and as you quiet yourself before the Lord, that God will begin to expose what is it that he's dealing with in your life. I want to share with you a story this morning. John Franklin recounts of a time in June of 1990 when he joined about 250 people to participate in a two-week evangelistic crusade in Mombasa, Kenya, which at the time had a population of one million people. And they were divided into themes of three, each going hut to hut and house to house, presenting the gospel. And John Franklin said this. He said he was in awe. And he said this, a few times in my life have I been in a service or a prayer meeting where the manifest presence of God could be felt, but never before in an entire city. Could you imagine that? I've been at churches before. I've been at churches before where I've walked in through the door. I've been to Pentecostal churches where I've walked in through the door, and I'm like, this is deader than a cemetery. Charismatic churches, and I'm like, this is gone. The fire left. And I've been into Catholic charismatic churches where I'm like, the fire's present. But could you imagine walking in a city and saying, oh, the Lord is here. His presence is here. And it says, he says this, wherever we walk, the presence of the Lord tangibly permeated the land. So much so that so so that often people were saved by the dozens. Franklin goes on to tell one example when his team of three was walking down a dirt road that led to the next village. And up ahead were three Kenyan men seated on stools by the roadside. And as we approached, he said, one of them arose and walked briskly toward us and greeted us in English. I'm reading an excerpt from this book on John Franklin's life. Excuse me, are you from America, he asked. Yes. Are you the ones who have come to tell us about the word of God? Yes, I answered. We've heard that you've come and we've heard of Jesus and of his great power. Tell me, how does one become his follower? My friends and I want to know. And John explained the plan of salvation, and without a trace of hesitation, the man immediately replied, let's pray. And John Franklin thought what I would have thought. That was too easy. He must have not understood. And so John Franklin repeated it again to him. But the man interrupted him, and he said, I understood you the first time. Let's pray. That story of people coming to them to be saved happened over and over again. 
And in all, 30,000 people responded to the call of the gospel in 14 days. 14 days of this team being on the ground. But there's a backstory, he adds, that is not shared. You see, oftentimes when we study church history, we hear about the great moves of God. And we're like, man, God, replicate it. Do it all over again. Do it more powerful this time. We want it more this time, greater than that generation of the past. And what we don't realize is that there's always a backstory. And so while you may become joyous that 30,000 people received Jesus and that the presence of God walked, there's a backstory to it. Because three months earlier, several churches in Mombasa began fervently praying for the concentrated days of evangelism. And during the two weeks of the crusade, a different church prayed all night each night. And John Franklin joined one of the all-night prayer meetings, praying until 7 o'clock in the morning when he went to bed. And he woke up four hours later and felt the presence of God in his hotel room so strong that he did not rise. He simply slid out of his sheets and to his knees in prayer. That day following that prayer meeting, John said every single adult they witnessed to trusted Christ. No one rejected the gospel that day. Franklin and the others in the crusade made a big discovery. The revival that came to the city happened because of the prayer meetings of God's people. Because of the prayer meetings of God's people. I made some pretty defining and conclusive statements last week. There is a difference. Crystal, want to come up here real quick? There is a difference in between this and prayer. Joyce, Aaron, Elaine, come up here real quick. Come on now. There's a difference in between me praying for my wife or you praying singularly over a person. And there's a difference. Lay your hands on her. And there's a difference in between this. The difference is, is that when we unite together in one thought, in one theme, for the person that's asking for something, then the God of the heavens readily hears the cry of his people. Thank you guys so much. Corporate prayer, prayer in mass, meaning prayer together is meaningful. It is powerful. The Bible says that all I need to do to have church is two people. Because it says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. You want to know why? Because sometimes you need that two or three to encourage. You need the two or three for spiritual backup and spiritual support. You need the two or three to enter into the throne room. I am convinced that while Moses saw God, that his two or three were Joshua and Aaron that supported him. I am convinced that while the prophets spoke as the mouthpiece of God, that there were people, men and women that surrounded them, that it wasn't just all about them. That God had them surrounded. Jesus was surrounded by the disciples. John the Baptist, the one who was set to prepare the way for the Lord, was surrounded by his own disciples. The apostle Paul was surrounded by Barnabas and Mark. And Peter was surrounded by the remainder of the disciples. I am convinced that a move of God doesn't happen singularly. It doesn't happen with one person. It happens when God begins to deal with a people. And I said that last week. I said when we pray together, God's hand moves. His purposes are accelerated when we pray together. 
If you look at the New Testament, you find a high priority when it came to praying together. One person after studying the New Testament said this, the early church didn't have a prayer meeting. The early church was the prayer meeting. In fact, in the early church, every Christian was a prayer meeting Christian. We looked at history last week. And we looked at some research in church history. J. Edwin Orr stated this, no spiritual awakening has begun in the world apart from united prayer. I am calling every believer in this place to hear the Spirit of God on this matter. We need a renewal of prayer in our church, in this church, among those who lead, among those who serve in various ministries, and as well as those who are presently in attendance but have not yet found a place that they serve in this place. And to fire you up for this, I want to take you to Revelation chapter 8. And let me explain to you a little bit of a backstory. John, the writer, the beloved apostle, the writer of the book of Revelation, tells us of the future of things that are to take place. And in the midst of earth-shattering events, there's this amazing pause in heaven and a lesson about prayer that is so staggering that if it weren't in Scripture, I absolutely wouldn't believe it. Reading from the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you have an e-Bible on your phones as an app, or if you don't have that, if there's a Bible uh, in, in the seat in front of you that you'd like to open to. Revelation 8, it says this, reading from verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Can I tell you something? My wife loves Middle Eastern culture. And every time we get the opportunity to do so, my wife gets these little incense things, and we have this thing in our house, and it's just incredible. It's like an air freshener throughout the house. It's, it just makes the area just smell incredible. Can I tell you something? Incense is powerful. Its scent is powerful. Its scent permeates through every room. You light one of those little bad boys, and it's going to go throughout in a 2,000-square-foot house very rapidly and very quickly. And it says this, he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. That's you and me. That's anybody who is called on the name of God. It's anybody who's chosen to step out of darkness and step into the light of Christ. Anybody who has been reached with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says this, on the golden altar before the throne those prayers and that incense was offered. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. Let me just share with you this. Whenever you see fire and altar together in the Bible, there's something deep that's about to happen. God is ready to do something. 
Fire in the scriptures represent consuming, and it represents power. It represents anointing. When the church began in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down on the church, and the Bible says, and there rested upon them tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. Fire is associated with the power of God. And listen to this. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it down upon the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I want to share with you something. There is an effectiveness to your prayer that you do not see, that you have not yet known. There is an effectiveness to your prayer that is being answered as we speak, but there are prayers that you have prayed that have yet to come into fruition. How many of you have looked on a TV screen and seen malnourished children in commercials? And maybe you didn't get on your knees, but you said a quick prayer there and you said, Lord, Lord, be with them. Lord, help them. How many of you have seen the plight of war? I remember I I saw the other day just in in Aleppo in Syria, there was this little boy, little Syrian boy covered completely in dust. I think part of his family had been killed. How many of you saw that in the news? It was this little boy. His picture ran all throughout the world, all over the news. Your heart broke when you saw that and you said, Lord, God of peace, when will there be peace on this earth? When will nations stop fighting against nations? When will kings and leaders stop rising against leaders? How many of you have seen famine and pestilence? Maybe you saw that Ebola virus, that recent outbreak that just threatened to come over here in America, and we tried to deal with it quickly. But in Africa, they were dealing with the effects. And maybe you saw that on the news and you said, God, when will this be over? Maybe you went to Morristown Hospital or Chilton or Hackensack University Medical Center or any other hospital in the area and you sat by the bedside of a sick person, somebody that had cancer or AIDS or was terminal. And you just thought in that moment as you grabbed their bedstand, God, when will disease be no more? These are the prayers that are spoken about in Revelation chapter 8. Those are the prayers of the saints that have been pent up and built up for thousands of years. And it's incredible because it's exactly what God uses to begin the transformation of the earth. When people look at the book of Revelation, they think scary. They think judgment. When I look at the book of Revelation, I see hope. I see that God is beginning to transform the world to bring it back to Eden. To bring it back to the way things was. To get rid of disease. The Bible says that the earth is once again purified with fire and made anew so that we can come back and inhabit it once again. How many of you have believed your whole life, you die, you go to heaven, that's it? That isn't it in Christianity. Heaven is just a temporary place until heaven kisses earth and earth becomes new. And disease is no more, 
and war is no more. And famine is gone. That is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the hope of Christ. And it's incredible because in Revelation chapter 8, you literally see the pent-up prayers. It says the prayers built up before the throne of God as the angel comes with the censer, filled with the incense, takes the fire of purification, anointing, and revival, and hurls it down upon the earth. As God begins to renew and give hope once again, as he begins to eradicate and eliminate disease, as he begins to eradicate and eliminate war and pestilence and all those things that have gone wrong in our society, all those things that sin has stolen from us. All those things that sin has taken away from us. So when you say, I wonder if God hears my prayer. There's the answer. They fill up before his throne. It's not that he has some storage room. You know, if I write a letter to the president of the United States, regardless of if it's President Obama or the president-elect Trump, then he's got a secretary. And you know what happens with his secretary? He's got a secretary in a room, and he's going to write me a nice little letter back. But guess what? It won't be him. It's going to be a secretary that writes it. And they have this very cool little pen. Right? The president and all the secretaries of government have this very interesting pen. It's a pen with a computerized. And what they do is on the first few days in office, they grab the president's signature, they scan it through, and what they do is they, that pen replicates the president's exact signature. And that's how I hear back from my president. But when I go to the king, the king doesn't have a secretary that's answering on his behalf. When I go to the king... And I begin to pray. The king answers me directly from his throne room. The answers to my prayers come directly with the signature of my king, the stamp of his approval, and the image of the almighty is all over it. Don't you ever think that prayers don't work. Don't you ever think that God isn't readily available to answer the cries of his people. God's timing is often different from ours. In the book of Exodus, the beginning of the book of Exodus, it speaks of the plight of the Jewish people and how they were enslaved for several hundreds of years. They were enslaved. They were being built up. God had a purpose. Despite the despair, God has a purpose. Despite despair and despite sorrow in your life, God has a purpose. And here's what it says. In the book of Exodus, the beginning chapters of the book of Exodus, as God begins his exchange with Moses and begins to call Moses, one of the things that God tells Moses, it says, I have heard the cry and the prayers of my people. And this is the time that I am choosing to respond. And you are the man that I have selected to respond to the need. There are a lot of prayers that are going up. Prayers from people that are not in this church prayers in this area of people who are broken and who are struggling. And I want to tell you that you don't need to wait for your own book of Exodus to be written. That tonight as you begin to pray and as you begin to think about the needs that are in our area, I want you to be open to the heart of God and the voice of God that says, I have heard the cry of my people. I have heard the cry of this town. And you are the person that I have selected to meet this need. Friends, our prayers are important. When we pray, we unleash 
the power of the Almighty. When we pray, heaven is silenced and the earth trembles. When the apostles began to pray because Peter was in prison, the prison shook and he was let out free. Prayer changes the course of things. In here, prayer directly changes the course of humanity. As God hurls down the prayers down to the earth, not in a sense of anger, not in a sense of rejection, but in a sense of here is the answer that you have been waiting for for 2,000 years. I'm about to give it to you as I send it down upon the earth. We need to be a praying people. If we lose that, then we become nothing. If we lose our ability to pray, then we become a powerless church. Have you ever heard the term lame duck? Right? The last two months of President Bush's uh, pregnancy, listen to me. No, don't do that. (laughs) The last two months of President Bush's pregnancy, Presidency, I was about to do it again. They call them a lame duck president. They're calling President Obama a lame duck president. The last several months of President Bill Clinton's presidency, they call them a lame duck president. You know what that means? It means at this point, they are just the head of the state. They cannot pass laws or pass legislation or change major things. They're at the mercy of everyone else that surrounds them. There's no effective change that can be brought upon at this point in their presidency. If you are not careful, you will become a lame duck Christian. You will become ineffective, ineffectual, and unable to effect change. And that's not where God has situated you. The Bible says that you are priestly. The Bible says that you are prince. The Bible says that you're the head and you're not the tail, that you're blessed, that you're highly favored. That's what the Bible calls you. And if God calls you that, then God sees the destiny, the potential, and the purpose within you. And his job is to extract that forward so that the image of God is more clearly seen in your life. That's the job of prayer. But I'm calling us to pray together. To not just be a praying person or a praying pastor, but to be a praying church, a praying people, a praying family. That's the goal this morning, that you would realize your prayers change the course of history. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward this morning because guess what I want to do? I want to pray. I want to pray. I want to pray. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your family. I want to pray for the petitions that you have. There's some deep stuff that maybe some of you are going for, and we want to pray.